if you want to have any price power, you need to have brand equity. Right? I mean, there's maybe other ways to do it, but you need to have brand equity. If you don't have brand equity, your product is a commodity. If your product is a commodity, you're not going to have any price power. So the reality today is that except very limited number of brands, we're in the business of commodities. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, David Goubert, President and CEO of Air Wellness. David, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and thanks for, for having me. So, uh, Brian, Kellen, really excited to be here with you guys and uh, doing great. Excited to talk strategy today with you, David. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to David and kind of learn the inner workings of uh, Air and kind of his, his background and what led him into to cannabis, you know? How are you, Brian? I'm excited. I think we're going to talk transitions. And of course, just for the record, David, we've got a little East Coast, West Coast battle. So <laughs> ah. if you could just give your location, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm located in, in South Florida, in uh, near, near Miami. So I'm I'm East Coast guy. Yeah. <laughs> Let the record state count. <laughs> so, David, for our listeners unfamiliar about you, can you give a little background about yourself and then kind of how you got into the cannabis space. Well, you got that from from now through the accent and what I said. I'm French. I grew up in France. I actually have an engineer background, so my my background education was more into supply chain and manufacturing, and I did that for a few years, long time ago, about thirty years in in France. Pretty quickly, joined the luxury business with with Louis Vuitton in 99, after a few years of working, consulting and manufacturing. And from there, I, I spent about 10 years with them, more on, with Louis Vuitton, with the brand, more on the manufacturing and supply chain of the company. But after those years, and let's say 15 years of being focused on supply chain, manufacturing, stuff like that, I got the bug for retail. So I asked the leaders of Louis Vuitton at that time if they would let me manage retail somewhere in the world and turn out to be in, in the U.S. and in, in the southeast of the U.S. So about 15 years ago, I, I moved to the U.S. for a second time, but moved to the U.S. to run the retail of, of Louis Vuitton. And then, then from there, the most recent 15 years have been about running retail, marketing, e-commerce, and general management of, of companies like Louis Vuitton, Starboard, Neiman Marcus. And, and before joining the cannabis industry, uh, I was for Neiman Marcus for three and a half years. So that was my, my previous, I'd say, most recent experience where I was the, uh, the president and running the, the Neiman Marcus brand, which is the, the, the big of the bulk of the Neiman Marcus group. Um, and, and it's about a $4 billion business in, in the luxury industry. And so that was my last job, I would say. So I, I got lucky to work in, again, supply chain, manufacturing, retail, marketing, and so on, which... I think got into your second part of your question, which is why cannabis and how did you get into cannabis? I'd say about two years ago, uh, something like that, I started thinking, hey, I, I've been for, in luxury for about 20 years. I want to experience something different. And I want to, to experience something that, one, plays maybe to the skill set that I've been able to, to develop and lucky to develop over the years. Two, in an industry that's a growing industry where we're, uh, we can do stuff. And three, where I feel like my contribution is a contribution to something that's a greater good in some ways. And that was very, very important to me to do that. Um, so I had a chance to meet John Sandelman, the founder of, of AIR, about a year and a half ago. And John and I started talking. And very quickly, 
uh, I realized how much the, the cannabis industry is actually really doing great stuff and, and helping people in their life. And at the same time, very quickly, we, re- we realized that the things I've done from a supply chain, manufacturing, leading retail, and so on, and the other things actually can play in, in cannabis where it's a vertically integrated business that at the same time, a very complex business, I'm sure we'll come back to that, where you do a bit of everything at the same time, right? But having that chance of having those experiences is helping. And then I really bought into the vision of the company and the, the fact that it's about that greater good and greater engagement at the same time. And then the last thing that that really made us make this decision together, with John, was the fact that in the life cycle of AIR, which let's say four years old, right? Uh, the company has been very much about growing through acquisitions and making sure that we're building the right foundation. But at the same time, we're going to a place where it's about scaling and optimizing and making sure that we have the right focus and clarity on the strategy for the team. And and that speaks very much to things that I've had a chance to do before. So we felt the industry makes sense from that standpoint. The the, the moment made sense. Uh, And to me, the fact that it it is uh, helping from a very good standpoint is key. Was there uh, any other companies that you looked at prior to, to joining Air? Or was it just kind of your relationship with John and, and that whole kind of... Uh... For, yeah, awesome. Yeah, great question. Because we very early had that relationship with, with John and that, that back and forth quite a few times before even exploring anything about, okay, what's the company is about? What's the vision? What do we care about? And, and tell me about the foundations and so on that I didn't feel necessary to go looking somewhere else. And a few months later, here we are, right? Um, so no, it's, I, I didn't look to other companies and felt that that was the right fit. I'm always fascinated about that transition when you're telling your inner circle, hey, like I'm thinking about leaving my job and taking a job in cannabis. People said, hey, David, cannabis, like what is wrong? Like, was there any of those conversations? Did they give you any of those feelings? You know, take us through those feelings. You never have, or you rarely have someone that doesn't, Whose the answer is, eh, right, yeah. It's either, what the hell are you doing? This is care suicide. Or it's, man, it's amazing. Uh, I can see why the growth that it's going to have and the fact that it's, it's serving people this way is amazing. That's for you. Go do it. I'm happy for you. Vast majority is actually that second part. But you do have a few people that are like, hey, what, what the hell are you doing? In my case... I had that personal conviction that it was time to do something different and that the only place I would go work would be places where there is that combination of, of growth, right moment in the, the, the life cycle of the company, connecting with the people clearly and, and feeling that I'm, I'm useful in a way, in a, in, a, in a greater way. So, But to your point, it's a, it, it always comes up as a question. I would say that stopping talking about myself for a minute, but more as we're building the team, it's been a bit of the same thing. Like, you know, you when you build a team like that, you always go to the people you've worked with at some point and be like, hey, what do you think? Refer me to someone or are you interested? And I've found more than than I thought, not only a will, willingness, kind of like, hey, yeah, I want, I want to jump in. So maybe that's reflective also of the evolution in the U.S., population about about cannabis at the same time maybe uh, but but uh, really felt that it was easier than I was expecting from that standpoint so you make the transition talk us through those first few weeks was it just like learning by fire hose yeah 
So I was lucky enough that in the transition, we had decided that, yeah, I would take the role of president, but not the role of CEO immediately. And that I would take the time to really visit, be with the teams and, and go to as many locations as possible. And, and I mean, to your point, learn from the fire hose, like completely. So I joined November 1st. Uh, not kidding. November, December, I don't think I spent a day in Florida, in Miami. Uh, I, I was on the road, visiting stores, visiting cultivation with the teams for a full two months. And I continue to do it afterwards. To me, that's key. But, but really, that first two months was that. And it was learning as much as possible and, and discovering. And at the same time, it was asking a lot of questions about why do you work in cannabis? Why do you work at AIR? And that was overwhelming in a sense of, I think so far I've met only one person, one person that hasn't served because I need a job which is fair, by the way, right? Uh, but the vast, vast majority was like, I'm working in cannabis. I'm not talking about air for now, but the industry. I'm working in cannabis because it made a difference in my life or in someone's life around me. And it felt nat natural and necessary for me to work in this industry. That's an awesome thing for a leadership team or for a leader. That's an awesome thing to have because you got people that are passionate about working in the industry. So my first two months, Kellen, back to your question, my first two months were very much about discovering. And the main thing was, how do we make sense of this business? How do we make sense of a business where you cultivate your plants, you process them into very different form factors, you sell in your own retail, but you also wholesale your products to others by the way, you buy products from others that are also your competitors in some cases. You're also a CPG business that builds brands and needs to build equity in your brands that you sell in your stores, but also to others. And by the way, to make it even more complicated, you can do that state by state because nothing can move cross state lines. That's not an easy business model. That's not an easy business model. So a lot of the work in November, December, but even more in January, was, all right, how do we make sense of that so that we can actually have very simple goals and, and focus as a company? Because if, if we try to do everything everywhere, we'll fail. Um, so how do we make sense of this? And so the first two months was those visits and really having that in mind. The month of January was very much about making, making sense of what's the strategy for the next three years. Uh, and, and from there, the following three months, by then, actually, that's when the Transition to CEO happened at the very beginning of February. And then from there, it was, okay, let's build a team based on what we've discussed of what the strategy should be and the business model is. Let's build a team, really organize the, organization, the, the, the company uh, to be able to answer to that and, and bring great clarity to, to the focus for, for that growth and for that sustainable growth in the future. While, hey, we're in cannabis, while at the same time, cash is king and we need to make sure that we be we are very, very focused on being cash flow positive, operating cash flow positive uh, for this year. So that's been the first long answer. That's been the first six months or, or, or seven months, let's say so far. Uh, discovery, slow down to align on strategy, and then build a team uh, based on the, the key actions that we've decided and, and get going. It's such a fascinating, like complex puzzle that you're kind of hopping on to like a full speed train. And I know from your previous role, you came from a mature industry that had defined yeah. metrics, defined, defined players with rules. You come to cannabis and you're kind of like understanding, okay, which metric is key for this part of the business? Which metric is key? 
how did they align internally? So I can only imagine the type of restrictions and challenges they kind of came into it because, right, like, like you were saying, your Arizona business operates different than your, your yeah. Massachusetts business. And plus, you're in different stages. Each market is yeah. in different stages. Yeah. So like from a time standpoint, did you spend your time working in more mature markets or was it more future outbound strategy or was it just kind of everything at the same time? It's been both. I think the, the step one was two things before I go into that strategy. The, the, the first one is that even coming in, before coming in, I felt that AIR has a great foundation from uh, um, states we're in or developing, uh, but also where we are from a cultivation, if you want, standpoint in terms of having, having really built the, the infrastructure that, that was needed. So that part, I would say, was already well, kind of well established and with, with clarity in terms of, hey, these are the type of states we want to be in. And we're not here to be the biggest and being everywhere in every state. We're pretty, um, I'm not going to say narrow, but, but focused in terms of, of uh, where we, we want to be. But so that was already kind of established. The most important, again, was what do we want this business model to be? Who are we? And on that front, kind of what came pretty quickly was say, okay, on one side, we're a retailer. We're a retailer. We have 85 stores. Uh, they're not air, all air. They have this dispensary right now, but they will. Uh, but we have a, a network of, of retail, and, and we're a retailer. That, that's one part of who we are. And on the other side, we are uh, what, what I call a house of brands, meaning we're a CPG company that build brands and cultivate and process products that needs to be at the right quality for those brands based on what's the promise of the brand and what, what are we creating in each of these brands. And so pretty quickly uh, realized that we're both these things at the same time, a retailer and a house of brands. First question you can ask yourself after that is, well, if we're two different companies, two different businesses, why are we one company and is there value in being one company or should we be two companies? Like you could split that and say on one side, you're a retailer, pure retailer. On the other side, you're a house of brands, right? That sell in different places. And going a bit deeper on that, like, okay, if we are to be one business that has those two different business models, if you want, it has to pay off as being something that is a virtual circle or, or, or to me, that is what I call a flywheel of that. And it is, actually. I think it is. I think it's going to pay off more in a let's say two years than it is today, but it is. Meaning as a retailer, and I like to take an example of from my background saying, hey, we're at the same time a mini Sephora and a mini L'Oreal. Uh, as a mini Sephora, the only thing you care about, quite frankly, the only asset besides your team, your people, which always is your number one asset, but your only asset as a retailer is building a loyal customer base. People are going to Sephora instead of going to Ulta or going to another because they are loyal to Sephora. Not because they can find products, because 99% of the products, they can find them in the other places, but because there's something that was built from a loyalty of customers that they buy into and it's a community that they feel part of. And that's the asset of any retailer. It was the same case at Neiman Marcus. Why do you shop Neiman Marcus instead of Saks? You're building loyalty. Uh, with with that. So on one side, we're a retailer and, and the only asset, the only focus is building a loyal customer base. And we can come back to what does it mean? 
as a house of brands, your only job is developing brands that make sense and have a real DNA story promise and making sure that the quality of the products that you, you, you deliver uh, correspond to those brands, right? Especially if we go in a good, better, best in terms of how do you structure your brands. So once we've said that, we say, okay, there's only three assets we need to focus on. We need to build a loyal customer base for retail. We need to have brands that have equity, which today, frankly, they don't. And we need to make sure that the quality that we deliver corresponds to the promise of those brands. So three focus, period. And where I'm saying that it's a, it can be a real flywheel is that as you build a loyal customer base for retail, you can actually expose them to your brands, which, I mean, we know that everyone is around 60, 70% internalization. So here we are. But the other way around is true as well. As you develop brands and really brands that start to have their own following, it becomes pretty easy to pull that and, and support your, your own network while also supporting wholesale as a business, right? So you actually get to that flying wheel or, 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 virtual, or virtual circle of, of growing the retail, but growing the equity of your brands at the same time. I'm saying it, it's going to take time on that front because I think that efforts on the retail side are actually f- paying faster than efforts in rationalizing the brand, really creating the story behind the brands and creating equity in brands. And th- that is work we need to do now, but that's going to pay off, I think, more in a year or two years than it will very short term. Yeah, so the businesses feed into each other, yeah. right? Cyclically. Yeah. And so how do you balance resources on both sides? Is it kind of equal and hoping that they both feed into each other simultaneously? Um, the thought process behind the balancing of resources for both businesses? Yeah, no, so that's an awesome question because that once we've done that, the next job was actually to make sure that we build the organization to support those assets, right? Uh, and in some places, it's pretty easy. Your own retail organization is very focused on retail. But the place where we had to think through what does it mean is in marketing, where marketing is actually a place that, and e-commerce at the same time, that supports uh, at the same time your retail, but supports at the same time how you build brands and build awareness. So we we're rethought the marketing organization to really have the functions that are retail functions versus the functions that are more brands functions and brand support. And, and, and yes, to your point, from an investment standpoint, it, it, it is measuring where do we put more resources and from a people standpoint and from a CapEx and OPEX standpoint between those different priorities and assets that we want to develop. I'm sure you made your marketing team very happy when you made that statement because I can only imagine as a, as a marketer how, how happy that would make me feel to hear an executive come in and understand the importance and the value of marketing especially given the challenge of cannabis. So you align your three North Stars. Yeah. Now you're looking at your geographic map and saying, okay, which one of these assets in these different states doesn't fit the vision? Is that kind of the steps that went into it? Exactly. Can you walk us through kind of the Arizona decision on why, you know, decided to go in a different direction? Yeah, no, um, where you're, it's, it's, it's exactly that. So the only way we can actually make this work is if we build enough awareness and enough market share. And if we don't build enough market share in the market, uh, that flywheel is not going to fly <laughs> or it's not going to turn. Um, and in the case of Arizona, three stores in the state, pretty limited presence from a wholesale standpoint, and 
pretty disconnected from the rest of our network uh, geographically. And when you put all that together, it didn't fit into the strategy of, of we need to gain market share in retail, we need to gain market share in wholesale, we need to build brands that will have a following and make these things work together. Arizona was complicated for us. Maybe it works for other, others, but as we were looking at priority of investments and where to focus, that didn't fit the bill. And on top of that, it was the right decision from a balance sheet standpoint, and we haven't talked cash yet, but that's a key, key focus. So didn't fit the strategy from everything we talked about earlier. Great outcome for us from a balance sheet standpoint made the decision pretty easy. We made the same decision at the same time pretty much by not uh, acquiring D33 in Illinois because don't have the depth yet in Illinois, don't have cultivation in Illinois. D33 has a great culture that is different from the air culture and, and would require a lot of efforts and even question, does that make sense at some point to... Uh, to, to, to transform that. So was not a priority at the moment. Doesn't mean Illinois will not be a state at some point bigger than the two stores we have today, but didn't make sense to make that a huge priority short term. So those two places were places where we said, hey, time out, that's more of a disinvestment that makes sense from a, a, a strategy standpoint. Now, if you look at the rest of the network, right, existing and what we're developing right now, it's in Florida, it's in Northeast, Midwest, and, of, and it's Nevada. For us, it's important as we build one retail brand, air cannabis dispensary, that people that travel, products don't travel, people do, uh, that people that travel can identify to the retail brand as what we're trying to do is build loyalty. So being in Florida with a, a significant market share, being in Northeast states as New Jersey, Massachusetts, um, uh, Pennsylvania, and so on, Developing Ohio, Connecticut, looking at Illinois or what we're going to do one day, but also Nevada, where we have a high market share, uh, the highest market share in the state. Nevada makes sense, meaning everybody travels to Nevada, but Northeast Florida goes there. And, and between Florida and Northeast, as we know, or Midwest is, is a pretty uh, obvious kind of from a customer and geographic standpoint. So that's how we've been thinking about it, which means as we think as developing into new states or stuff like that, that's also the approach we need. We want to take. We want to be in a place that makes sense from a geographic standpoint. We want to be in a place where we can have a significant market share. And we want to be in a place that is disciplined from a regulation standpoint uh, that, that we can actually operate and operate in a, in a healthy way. And that's what's guiding. So besides, as we said, Arizona and Illinois, all the other states that we're in makes a lot of sense. And for us, they're states where we want to invest. Some are mature, but we still want to invest and think that we can do much better. Nevada. Uh, some are growing fast and same thing, Florida. Uh, and some are just starting now like Ohio. Uh, or they're steady like Pennsylvania, but we're all waiting for adult use there. You guys uh, have to intrinsically run like your rec businesses, different different than your med businesses, right? So the business operating in Nevada in recreational market, do you guys handle that significantly different than say business operating in Pennsylvania? And if so, like, can you kind of talk us through some of the nuances yeah. there? So obviously, what what differs and what we need to be very careful of is uh, the regulation and the things that are different from a regulation standpoint. That said, I don't think that there's major differences in terms of the experience 
that we want to create for a, a, a patient that's in a medical state or that is a medical patient uh, versus uh, a recreational uh, or, or a person. Because, and the main reason for that, uh, which I, I I love that by the way, and I think it's untapped, is that we're in a business that creates pretty intimate relationship, and whether it's because uh, you're a patient with uh, a need that is specific to to your situation that you explain with a butt tender and create that very very intimate relationship, whether you just want someone that's going to help you find the best products for you that's going to help you relax or or discover something different you are in in a relationship that's pretty intimate with that person and 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 sharing a lot about yourself and i love that in terms of what we can build from a customer loyalty and customer relationship standpoint the other thing that i love about this industry is that the frequency is very high and by the way the retention as well i keep saying hey i come from the luxury world where everybody's talking about loyalty of customers clv meaning customer lifetime value of customers and so on a customer in luxury spends 5 600 dollars per visit comes 3 times a year that's like 1500 to 2 grand a year a cannabis customer comes every 2 weeks spends depending on the market 60 to 120 dollars Guess what? Their value per year is the same as the value of, a, of, of a, a luxury customer. If you ask me, I prefer the cannabis customer. If I have 26 times per year or 25 times per year a chance to connect, not even talking about what we need to do from a, a digital standpoint and, and connection outside of the physical presence of the store, this is a gold mine compared to other industries. If you get the intimacy, a pretty high retention possibility, and a lot of touch point, that's a dream for a retailer. So I love that about cannabis. Was that one of the driving forces internally in your mind when you were thinking, okay, like in, in luxury, I have one or two experiences with this customer, but I know in cannabis, I'll get a lot more. Did that opportunity kind of excite you, understanding that you can leverage that accelerator and learn yeah. more about the customer? Was that part of the, the transition that made you kind of interested? I did not realize that as much before coming in, and it, it it came through the visits and through seeing, actually physically seeing in the stores, customers and patients that are in the store, but they're waiting because, I don't know, uh, Bob, their butt tender, is actually serving someone else, and they're like, no, I'm not going to go with with Joe. I'm going to wait for Bob because I want I want to have the time with Bob. I was like, wow, that's gold. But I did not necessarily realize that before joining. It's through the visits that I was like, wow, we got we to really do something about that. Did Bob get a raise? <laughs> He's going into HR right now. He's going to go into HR. Oh, hey, you know, um, <laughs> it's, it's very important to take great care of our, our, our teams and recognize the value of the team. Uh, I've been impressed since I arrived. I've been impressed by the actually customer experience from that standpoint, that intimate moment. And I've been uh, very impressed by the knowledge and, uh, and at the same time, the care that our teams have. And by the way, it, if you think about it, it's not surprising. And we're back to the same question about why are you here, right? It's people that care. And that translates so well into the experience. So if you ask me, the improvement of the experience is not that much about that very moment. Yes, there's work to do there, but that, that is already in a very good place, I think, compared to other retail industries. I think it's everything around 
And I'm not talking that much about the physical environment, by the way. I think it's everything around that we can do such a better job than we are today. By that, I mean the uh, overall customer journey that integrate digital and, and physical. It's how do we communicate with our patients and customers where they are not with us physically? And, and what does that look like? It's the understanding by the teams of, hey, Brian was here last week. Have you asked him, have we contacted him to ask him about his experience? And or Brian was here two months ago. We haven't seen him in two months. What's happening with Brian? Those are more of the things that we need to work on than the moment of the experience physically that I think is already really great and always can do better. Uh, neither the environment itself. At some point, we need to improve the environment. In my opinion, it's like number four, number five in the priorities. And it's like, hey, yeah, we'll do some stuff, but that's not key. One of the challenges for you must be the fact that from a balance sheet standpoint, it's kind of restrictive with some of the operations you have. Obviously, you've come flush with opportunities and ideas in order to improve yeah. this business. But as a new executive, you have to be prudent with capital, especially from a shareholder standpoint. They want yeah. to know, you know, David's going to come in, he's going to write the ship. So how do you balance that as a new yeah. CEO of a publicly traded company yeah. wanting to put your stamp on the company, but also at the same yeah. time being respectful of what they need to happen? Yeah. So it's clear that cash is... King, having a strong, healthy balance sheet is paramount, right? Especially for, I mean, for everyone, but truly for us, considering uh, where we are. But at the same time, we need to have clarity on where we're going to, the, to in the two, three years. And, and again, narrowing that focus so that we're not trying to boil the ocean, but we're very, very, very discreet, very clear on the few things that will make a difference. The balance that we found is that, luckily, in a way, we have a lot of opportunities for optimization from a, not even a balance sheet necessarily standpoint, but if, even from a PL standpoint, we have a lot of, uh, of, of potential for optimization because the company has been growing very fast through acquisitions. Uh, it's been in a different time of, of cannabis at the same time. And here we are at a moment where we can say, hey, we need to prioritize, we need to be focused. And, and we need to make sure that, that we leverage our assets uh, to, to be in a good place from a cash position. So what that means concretely for AIR, we had and we still have too much inventory compared to where we should be. And so I'm taking my supply chain hat and saying, hey, guys, we're, we're running at an inventory that is at 90 plus million dollar for a revenue of $117 million in the last quarter. That's almost... 90%, meaning 85, 90% of the inventory representing the sales for the quarter, best in class in the industry are capable of doing that with 50, 60%. Uh, and, and you can see everywhere that we're not balanced from that inventory. So that is an opportunity of 10, $20 million of, of cash, if you want, through a, a better management from an inventory standpoint. Let's make sure we bring the talent from a supply chain. Let's make sure that we make the right decisions in terms of right-sizing capacity, right-sizing SKUs, and so on. Um, that, that's one example in inventory. Margin is another one where I think we, we, despite price compression, where we have opportunities, which I don't love, but it is what it is. It's a highly discounting uh, industry right now. But to the point that sometimes we're stacking discounts that we don't need to stack. So again, having that health uh, of looking at Really, what do you where do you stack? Don't stack, and so on. There's opportunities from a margin through internalization and other things. So that's been a big focus from a, a cash standpoint. And then the uh, 
The third one is on the cost savings. I mean, we we found millions and millions and millions of savings uh, for, for the year that will allow us to get to a much better place from an SGNA standpoint. Again, because we're pausing from a, 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 a very different moment that was about acquiring, 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 and now it's about optimizing and scaling. So even though you got said that constraint from a cash standpoint, I'd say that doing that work, what we call our 2023 optimization plan, gives us at the same time the capability to invest in the things that matter. So it's making sure we get to a good place. And we, we, uh, we said that we would be at 25% of EBITDA by the end of the year. Uh, we said that we would be operating cash flow positive for this year. So all that work is going into all this. But at the same time, it's, it's kicking the can if you don't invest in the things that actually generate growth in the second half of the year and and then for the, the for the year 24-25. Yeah, I, I think we're on the same page with that. And I think it's critically important. And I wonder how many other cannabis companies probably need to take an inward look on optimizing their efforts. And I can only imagine from a supply chain perspective of looking out and of all the different operations across the different states and saying, okay, everybody, we're going to have to tighten it up. And these are the type of numbers we have to hit. And then kind of digging deep into understanding, you know, what are the root causes of these problems? You know, where's the decision-making? And then kind of correlating is it just in Florida? Is it New Jersey? Is it in Ohio? How like is it a singular problem or is it kind of a compounded problem that works through the supply chain in in each different state? Now that's where you get into the business units, and each business unit is unique from that standpoint because uh, Florida is in a very different situation in so many ways than Massachusetts. I mean, those are probably two really good examples. I mean, on one side you have. Uh, Florida, where you can only sell the products that that you grow right in your store, so it's a it's the most purely uh, integrated business. But at the same time, it's a business where there's growth, where you can open as many stores as you want, if it makes sense, right? From a from a bottom line standpoint, but also from a capex standpoint. Uh, so through that, it adds its own unique supply chain questions, and maybe by the way, the simplest one from a supply chain standpoint. Then you take Massachusetts, which is a totally opposite state uh, where you have over 300 dispensaries, but you can have only three dispensaries, right, as as an MSO. So, hey, you're 1% of the market from a dispensary standpoint. Uh, Yet, hey, if there's 300 dispensaries, there's a high uh, potential for wholesale, which from a supply chain standpoint, you need to be thinking completely differently. In your own network where you need a good internalization, but at the same time, the breadth of products that correspond to what your customers want, medical and rec, while at the same time, you're working on that, that wholesale priority. So each state, we could talk about Nevada, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, each state is unique from that standpoint. And in some ways, it's easier than industries like, like fashion, and stuff like that, where you need to buy products about nine months in advance. And, and in here, it's not the case. You actually build products that lead time is like four months, four or five months, right? Between the time that you make a decision, you cultivate to the time you see it in your stores or wholesale. But it's still four months, let's say. So you got a time to be wrong on your forecast and what you see the business to be six months down the road. Is that as hard as it sounds? Or is it maybe a little simpler with experience, right? Because like, that sounds incredibly complex, and I'm just wondering, just hearing that, is it as sound as is it as challenging as I'm kind of processing? I don't think it's easy because I think it's 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 again different by state, 
And on top of that, it's still a young industry, which means that it's it's not as uh, predictable and as other industries. And we all know the swings from a price standpoint and stuff like that. So it's not easy by any means. Um, yet at the same time, I think there's also um, um, a lack of processes and expertise in some of these aspects that can help make it easier. So slightly switching gears, I know we talked about the fact that uh, in cannabis, there was price discounts where they get stacked on top and coming from the luxury world, that doesn't really exist like that. So do you think that's based on the fact that the brands haven't established the type of value to demand the type of price point that currently exists? And does Air plan on uh, pushing the envelope and kind of aligning a little luxury value with the product in the future? So you're absolutely right. And I mean, you're, you're a marketer. You're absolutely right. It's, it's If you want to have any price power, you need to have brand equity. Right? I mean, there's maybe other ways to do it, but you need to have brand equity. If you don't have brand equity, your product is a commodity. If your product is a commodity, you're not going to have any price power. So the reality today is that except very limited number of brands, we're in the business of commodities. And so... The only way for us to actually change that, and, and we're back to that point about that house of brands focus, is to build brands that have equity. And today it's not the case. On that front, coming in, I was, we have 11, I think 11 brands that are national brands. And they're more specific by form factors. We've got brands on flower, brand of, of uh, pre-roll and branding edibles and vapes and so on. And the reaction of the team and myself as we're digging through the strategy was say, there's no way, no way we can build equity in 11 brands. And there's no way with an average of 5 or 6% market share in the markets we're in, I mean, 2% on the overall cannabis, and let's say that in the states we're in, there's no way we can divide marketing investments to create awareness on 11 brands. It's not going to work. So we need to actually think differently. We need to have that good, better, best, which in your way, in a way, Brian is answering question on luxury, but it's, we need to have that good, better, best from a strategic standpoint on brands. We need to rationalize to, to way less brands so that we can actually invest and, and make them more visible uh, for our, our patients and customers. And at the same time, a big question has been, a brand need to accompany someone in their cannabis journey. And if I'm a cannabis patient customer that actually use flower, pre-roll, vapes, edibles, drinks at different moments in my, in my life, then I should be able to have a brand that's offering that to me as well, where I can recognize the brand, identify with the brand, and, and in the different moments. And in that sense, big debate. I don't think there's a right or wrong. But in that sense, we're making a clear decision to say that we want brands that will actually be across most, if not all, categories because it's about aligning a brand with a customer and with having a story. It's not about one form factor or one category. Nobody's surprised that Louis Vuitton, who's a Maltier that was doing handbags, if you were to go to a store and the shoes were, uh, I don't know, another brand, it would be like, why, why, why do they change brand? Like, I want Louis Vuitton, right? We need to get to the same place. I mean, our key brand is kind. Uh, you should have kind flower, kind pre-roll, kind vape, kind edibles. I'm giving you stuff that are not launched yet, by the way, but um, 
that's the core. <laughs> that's the core of what we what we need to create. So long answer, Brian, but that's uh that's how we're thinking about the power of brands, which give the power of price. If we're in a commodity market, it's commodity price. The one challenge that I'll push back on you is that in each state, there's different marketing regulations. So you can't even display the product the same way. So for example, if I buy a product in one state and I'm like, well, cool, this is the kind of product that I like. And then I go to Florida, I'm like, where's this product? I mean, that's an extra layer of challenge that you currently yeah. have to operate in to convince yeah. a customer, hey, same, yeah. same, but different. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. So first step is making sure that even the name of the brand is allowed in the state that we're in, right? Which we had that issue with some of the brands. So as we're thinking about rebuilding the brand, the first question is like, hey, let's make sure we pick names that actually uh, we can use everywhere. And then you're right. I mean, in Florida, it's all white everywhere, but you can still merch, have some merch, not products, but merch in the stores or your, your website and so on. But to your point, I mean, from a marketing assets and, and how you think about it, it differs state by state. So it's an interesting balance actually in every function of what's corporate support, or I like to say support, not corporate, by the way, what's support nationally versus what needs to be in each uh, market, each business unit. Easier said than done. Yeah, well, yes. Uh, and, and, and it seems to us that the right balance right now is giving a lot of power and autonomy by market but having the expertise, so from a revenue standpoint, PL standpoint, even launch of product standpoint, and so on, combining retail and wholesale together, by the way, which we don't want to consider as different responsibilities, and make sure that from a national standpoint, we bring that expertise that comes usually maybe from a different industry, obviously, except for the functions that are super close to, to the uh, cultivation and process. That, that can support those regional teams you know, on the day-to-day with a national expertise. But most likely, a decision power much more in the markets than, than central. Continuing on the conversation, you got an announcement with the U.S. Cannabis Council. I would love for you to share that with our listeners. Yeah. Uh, so, so we just announced that, meaning that uh, we're, we're now um, part of the U.S. Cannabis Council. For us... I'm going to take, again, the example of coming from the luxury. When you're LVMH and Kering and, and Richemont and Chanel, you're not that much competing. Of course, you love competing against each other, but you're not that much competing about against each other. What matters for the luxury world is you're going to grow if you open up more people into uh, the luxury world and understand the value of luxury. And yeah, you're going to want to have market share from the others, but it's about growing the pie more than increasing your size in the pie. And, and we're thinking about cannabis the same way. It's a young industry. It's different players. It's, it's, uh, and, and we need to make efforts together to actually combine our efforts to be heard. I believe it's true from uh, being known and appreciated by more Potential customers, even though that was a surprise to me to see how much it's actually something that's already the case today, where we're saying, I think it's like 70% are either consumers or thinking about it in the next six months. So it's true from a customer standpoint. It's also true from an an overall political standpoint and regulation standpoint. And the more we're going to be able to bring the players together, and the more we're going to be able to to actually move faster uh, on things. And 
that's why we we, we chose to join the uh, U.S. Cannabis Council, and and that's why we're thinking about where the efforts that we want to be part of. Meaning, everybody's asking about Florida and what we're doing in Florida to support there, and and everywhere. Meaning, how we're we supporting these efforts. But take Florida because obviously that's the question. Team and and truly have been driving the efforts and and putting a, a really significant amount of money that that's serving everyone uh, to to actually get to a place where it's adult use, where we're going to be thinking in next steps, how do we help, right? Like, obviously, each company is different, and we're not in a position that we could have done what, what Trulief did, absolutely not. But it's on us to figure out how do we help. And again, the best way to help is actually to be, play, to be really uh, connecting the dots together between the players. When you got started in the cannabis journey, what did you get right? And most importantly, what shocked you or surprised you? What surprised me most, but also encouraged me most, what I shared about before, which is the passion, really the passion, and I would say courage with it, of the people in the industry. And it goes beyond air. It, it's, it's the industry. Uh, that's really what was the, the biggest wow and surprise. All the moments where I felt that way as well and, and, and really proud of being part of, of the industry and the company was, for example, the expansion events that we're doing where we're helping people uh, getting their uh, criminal records uh, expunged and, and, and those kind of moments where we feel like, hey, we're really doing something that, that's extremely helpful. Um, so that was great surprise, I would say, and, and, and things that, that uh, were, were wow coming in. Surprise, good surprise from a business standpoint, I would say, was understanding the level of where we are from a cultivation capacity and cultivation quality and so on standpoint. So recognizing all the work that's been done on that front. And I would say a third on the very positive things was I didn't expect that being a company that's the conglomerate of 18 different small companies that were put together. I expect it to be like, wow, to get numbers and understanding the business is going to take forever. And the platform that was built by the finance team, tech team, on making sure that everybody's running with the same platform, that, I mean, we are at a level of data that is as good as what I had at Neiman in a 115-year-old company. And that was extremely surprising in a super good way. The surprises or things where you're like, well, not as excited, the level of promotions and discounting that's happening, the lack of equity in the brands and what we need to build from that standpoint were, were some of the, the, the things that were uh, surprised. Don't know if I answer, but that's, that's some of the things that, that were uh, moments coming in. We're sitting here five years from now. What have you accomplished? Very important for me is making it true to our promise of being a force for good, which means that the company is truly accompanying our patients and customers, supporting our teams, supporting the communities, and supporting on um, righting the wrong and on the war on drugs. And having to do that, we need to be in a healthy company in a healthy situation to do that. So to do that five years from now, uh, we're obviously in a great balance sheet position, but we've really made it true to what I was sharing about. We are 
the retailer of choice, meaning that we have a loyal customer base that's really loyal to air. And we've built, let's say, three brands that mean something in the industry. Five years is a long time. And I think that we're in dog years here. So five years feels like forever. Uh, but let's say three years from now, that's where I want us to be. Five years is like a full career. <laughs> for sure. So, for sure. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? I'm going to share, let's say three. The first one is don't be afraid to change. Meaning that I've been in, in a place at some point where I stood probably too long in a position or in a place. And you need to stay long enough that you're learning, that you're making a difference, making an impact. But don't be afraid to change. Don't be afraid to move into something uncomfortable. That's going to help you grow. That's, the, the, I'd say, the number one thing. The second thing is don't get comfortable and actually take decision fast. You, okay, you need to take the time to think through things, but don't hesitate to take decision fast enough and, and, and listen to your guts and people around to make these decisions. Getting a lot of feedback and, and, and things from my teams, I, I, I don't think at any time it has been about, well, we're going too fast or we're, we're, why. It, it's been at some point more about, why didn't we do that six months ago? Uh, so, and, and I'm taking that as, a, as really in a learning from before for this experience for me and trying to actually take decisions and go fast. That's the second thing. And then the third thing that I try to stay true to, and that to me is, is key, is loyalty. I care about my teams and, 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 and I care about the people around me more than anything else. And the great thing about that is that that means that you get that back from others as well. And standing today in a company where there's great talent that is here because we've had other experience at other moments with me or others. And, and that's how you can build that. So don't be afraid to change. Go fast and be loyal. Beautiful. All right. Prediction time. David, as the cannabis industry continues to mature, what developments do you foresee in optimizing the consumer journey and applying your luxury background to build strong customer loyalty? How does Air Wellness plan to stay at the forefront of understanding and meeting consumer needs? Wow. To me, that, that key thing goes back to building those relationships and building that loyalty. Everything evolves, in my opinion, at least on the, on the retail side on that. And the main changes, the main evolution, the main way we need to think about it is very much about how do you build a relationship. So yeah, that, that to me is going to be core to the changes and, 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 and core to how we're thinking about, uh, about the changes. And that answers your second point at the same time about what will be different? What will be different should answer to that from a product standpoint, from a tech standpoint, from an environment standpoint, and, and everything else. Kellen? Uh, I'm going to say consistency, right? I think product consistency, especially operating in all these different states, I think that's going to create loyalty and that's just going to feed into everything you just mentioned, David, right? Yeah. So product consistency is, I think, key to, to all of those things as well. What do you think, Brian? I think brand power is is uh -huh. earned, right? And can command a type of value just given the the name and the integrity behind it. And you can't see anything more than the brands you've worked with, David, because my wife talks about these concepts and I'm just <laughs> disgusted by the price point. But 
it commands that value just based on the brand. And, 100%. and in 100%. Canada, we're all fighting to figure out like which products and all we're talking about is, is burn through, right? Like how quickly can we turn over these products and eventually yeah. we'll stabilize and have economies of scale yeah. and a national footprint. And people will be able to put those positions in front where you walk in, you can command that 60, 70, $80 for an eighth here in New York, probably like 400 because yes. we're <laughs> trade out. And it's just a matter of building the infrastructure and understanding that the footprint today is also not the footprint for the future. So having someone like yourself, David, at the helm is probably exciting, but also challenging knowing that the tides will change. You just need to fight through the water. So mm-hmm. give you yeah, that. Hey, you know what I love about our answers is that I went into customer loyalty, which is one of the three assets. Helen, you went into consistency of products, which to me is quality. And Brian, you went into brand power, which is the third asset. So the three of us have actually just talked about the three assets that is what we as a company are 100% focused on. So I I love it. We all see the North Star. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) So David, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to buy air products. Where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on the, on Twitter. They can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me on the, uh, reaching out to us on the, at uh, Air Wellness. Awesome. We'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks so much for taking time. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.